Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some under the chairs in the rows in front of you, and you can take and use those and follow along with us. It's the third message this morning in our series uh, called Fearless, and we're going to be talking about this passage today here, and then I know you'll have some discussion time in your ABFs as well. So let me read this passage of Scripture for us. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought brought to him a paralytic, lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this point, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and, quote, sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you came to save sinners. Because that's what we are. And Father, you knew all of that about us. You saw our heart, you saw our rebellion, our turning against you. And yet you chose in love to send your Son to be our Savior. As we think about what that means this morning, as we think about how great your forgiveness and mercy is, would you move our hearts to serve, to love, to worship, to respond to you more fully than we have ever done before? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Max Lucado's book, Fearless, he tells a story about a football player from the University of Texas. His name is Noble Doss. And Noble Doss played in a very important game back in 1941, a game he will never forget. It was just one pass, one ball, one mistake, but Noble Doss dropped the pass. He dropped the ball, and it has haunted him ever since because he believed that he cost his team a national championship. The University of Texas football team was ranked number one in the nation that year, and they were hoping for an undefeated season and a berth in the Rose Bowl. And they were playing their conference rival, Baylor University. They had a 7 to nothing lead in the third quarter, and the Longhorn quarterback launched a deep pass to a wide-open Doss. He said, the only thing I had between me and the goal was 20 yards of of grass. 
The throw was on target. The Longhorn fans rose to their feet. And the sure-handed Doss stuck out his hands to catch the ball. And it slipped right through his hands. Baylor would rally. They would tie the score with seconds to play. Texas would lose their top ranking and consequently their chance at a Rose Bowl and a national championship. And he said, I think about that play every day. It's not that Noble lacked other happy memories. He's been happily married for more than six decades. He's a father, a grandfather. He served in the Navy during World War II. He appeared on the cover of Life magazine with his Texas teammates. He intercepted 17 passes in his college career, which was a university record. He won two NFL titles with the Philadelphia Eagles. He's in the Texas Football Hall of Fame and the Longhorn Hall of Honor. And yet that one play still haunts him. Most fans remember the plays he made and the passes he caught, but he remembers the one that he missed. Why? Why are we like that? Those of you who are Viking fans will remember Jim Marshall. He was an all-pro defensive end for the Vikings. He was part of the famed Purple People Eaters back in those years. And he played 282 consecutive games. I mean, he had an incredible Ironman streak of being in every game during his career. And yet, Jim Marshall was also known as Wrong Way Marshall. One play in one game. You can still see it on YouTube. It's out there. But in 1964, in a game against the San Francisco 49ers, there was a play where Billy Kilmer fumbled the ball. Marshall scooped it up, but he got turned around, and he ran the wrong way into the end zone, resulting in a safety for San Francisco. Marshall said, My first inkling that something was wrong was when a 49er gave me a hug in the end zone. That's the clue, yeah, that something wasn't quite right. And he remembers that play. And it bothers him. We all make mistakes. We all have sinned. We all have done things in our life that we wish we could do over. You know, I think back to some of those years in middle school, for example, and I wish I could do some things over in those years. There are things that we wish we could erase things that we wish we could change somehow and do differently. It's interesting, too, how we can remember our failures more than our successes. You know, I think about even here at church, I was looking in the years that I've been here, we've had 223 baby dedications. I mean, that's, that's a lot of babies that have been born in these years. And you know the one I remember? I remember the one where I messed up the name. And I I read the wrong name. Failures take on a life of their own because the brain remembers incomplete tasks or failures longer than our successes. There's a term for that in psychology. It's called the Zygernick effect. Where we remember those things that we wish we could do over again or fix or change because they feel incomplete. There's no closure to them. We are a people in need of forgiveness and closure. 
The brain does an interesting thing when a project or thought is completed or when we've had success in an area, we can put that kind of into a compartment in our brain that says, boy, that felt good, you know, that was, there was closure there or that was a really neat thing that happened. And over time, those memories will dim. We can still recall many of those things. But failures have no closure. And the brain continues to spin the memory, trying to come up with ways to fix the mess and to move it from the active to the inactive status. We remember our failures. We see our failures and we fear we've disappointed God. We see our sin and we fear we've exhausted His grace. But thankfully, that's not the way that God sees us. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I believe this is a very important message, a message that we all need to hear about God's grace and His mercy, His forgiveness, and the fact that God can use all of us to serve Him when we bring those things to Him. When we come to know Christ, He forgives us all our sins. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to circle that word, all. When we come to know Christ, He forgives us all our sins. In the passage that I read for us this morning, there's a story here of a man who was a paralytic. He was unable to move himself. Can you imagine what that was like? He needed to be carried everywhere he went. They didn't have mobility and wheelchairs and motorized chairs that could be used like we do today. And so he needed friends or family who would carry him. And he had some very loyal friends who brought him to Jesus. When they came to the house where Jesus was speaking, it was full. And we learn from the other Gospels that tell this story that there was no way that they were going to get in. So these guys, being rather creative, decided to go up on the roof and cut a hole. Make an opening so they could lower their friend down on his mat into the presence of Jesus. Houses in those days had outside staircases. The roof was flat. It was made of a thick layer of clay that was set over branches that had been put on top of the beams to support the ceiling. And so here they are, and these guys are up there, and they're starting to chip away through the clay. You know, they're going to pull aside the branches. They're going to make a hole big enough for this guy to be dropped down by ropes on his mat through the roof. Can you imagine what that was like? I mean, I just, I think it's one of the funnier pictures here in Scripture. I mean, I think about the reaction of the people below. I mean, what were they thinking? Here's a crowd in there, you know, and debris starting to fall and dust and clay and branches and all of that coming down. They're looking up and going, what are these guys doing? I mean, I wonder what Jesus was thinking. Most teachers don't like to have their talks interrupted like that. Most homeowners don't like to have their roof torn up. Yeah, I can imagine that guy. He's going, hey, get out of there. What are you doing? But Jesus wasn't upset. He saw their faith and he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart. Take courage. He called him son, a term of endearment. And he said to him, Your sins are forgiven. Now, at that point, his friends were probably wondering about this. I mean, they had brought their friend to Jesus hoping that he was going to heal him. They wanted him 
to be able to walk once again. But Jesus saw the deeper need. He saw his need for forgiveness. And he said, My son, your sins are forgiven. When the teachers of the law heard that, they said that this man is blaspheming. And normally blasphemy is when you say something bad about God. You deny his power. You misuse his name. You falsely attribute his power and work to Satan or someone else. Well, in this case, though, they accused Jesus of blasphemy because he was claiming to do something that only God can do. Forgive us our sins. And so they brought this charge against Jesus, but ironically, they were the ones who were guilty of blasphemy that day because they were denying that Jesus was God. They were denying his power and authority to forgive sins. They were the guilty ones. So Jesus saw their heart, knew what they were thinking, and he said, which is easier to say? You know, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to take up your mat and walk? Well, in their mind, they're thinking it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because who's going to know? Who's going to know that Jesus has the authority to say this? But that's actually the greater work here, isn't it? To forgive us our sins? That's the greater work than the miracle of healing. But in order to show that he had the power to forgive sins, he said to the man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and he went. And the crowd was filled with awe. The word there in Greek is actually the word for fear. They were filled with a holy fear of God. Something miraculous had happened. And they had never seen anything like it before. Jesus has the power to forgive us our sins. In Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, the Scripture says that when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. And He forgave us all our sins. There it is again, that word, all. He forgave us all our sins. Past, present, future. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, and he took it away, nailing it to the cross. He took our sins, this debt that we owed, this penalty where we deserved death because of our rebellion and sin against God. And Jesus took that upon himself and paid that penalty that we deserved. We all have sinned. And what we need more than anything else is forgiveness. We need spiritual healing at the very core of our being. And that's what we find when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. One of Rembrandt's most famous paintings is of the crucifixion. And in his painting of the crucifixion, he portrays all the characters that you would expect to be there in such a scene. There is Jesus. There are the two thieves hanging on the cross on either side of Jesus. There are the soldiers. There's a large crowd of onlookers. But down in the corner of the painting, as one who shared in the guilt of the cross, Rembrandt painted a portrait of himself. 
he acknowledged that he also was a sinner in need of God's grace and forgiveness. Have you done that? Have you admitted to God that you are a sinner? And have you asked Him to forgive your sins and to be your Savior? The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The second thing we see in this passage of Scripture is that when we come to Christ, we become a new creation. We become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And we see that in the story here in Matthew as this passage continues in verse 9. Jesus now calls a man whose occupation made him a pariah, a social outcast. And here was one of these guys who would have been looked upon by the people as one of the lowest of the low. I mean, nobody wanted to associate with tax collectors if you were going to be a a good person, an upstanding person. This is someone of low morals that you would not hang around with at all. What do we know about tax collectors? Well, here's some of the things that we learn from history and from the Scripture about tax collectors. Uh, number one, they were collaborators with Rome. I mean, that's, that's like working for the enemy. I mean, these guys were like traitors. I mean, here they are. They're collecting taxes from their own countrymen to benefit Rome. And the citizens did not like that at all. Tax collectors made their money by overcharging on taxes. They padded the amount that you owed and they would collect more than that. We know again from Zacchaeus in the scripture where he uh, had made so much, you know, that he, when he came to Christ, chose to pay back what he owed to everyone. That's how they made their money. They had such a reputation for dishonesty that they couldn't even testify in court. You wouldn't bring these guys in to be a witness in a court because you saw that you couldn't trust them in anything. They were barred from worship in the synagogue because of their contact with Gentiles. The Orthodox were forbidden to walk with them, to do business with them, to eat with them, to have them in their home or to go to their home as well. So often for tax collectors, their only friends were other tax collectors and sinners. It must have been a lonely life. And yet here comes Jesus along and he sees Matthew, who was also called Levi in the other Gospels. And he says, Matthew, follow me. Follow me. What a picture of grace. Jesus would call Matthew to be one of his disciples and he would eat with him in his home. You know, I think about that. I mean, that that amazes me when I put it into the context of what happened here. And it blew the Pharisees' mind. I mean, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? They just didn't understand. This is nothing that a good religious person would do. Why would you associate with them? And that challenges me. Are there people 
in our community, our world, that you would think are beyond the hope of the gospel? Or that you just wouldn't want to even get to know because, you know, you're just not supposed to associate with them? Jesus challenges our prejudices. He challenges our assumptions about people. And in answer to that question, why did Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go and learn what that means. You know, they thought the way that you fulfilled uh, the requirements that God had was just by trying to keep the law to the letter and they could do that very well in a rule kind of way, but in their heart they were far from God. And what God wanted more than anything else was a changed heart. A heart of compassion and mercy. A heart that recognized their own sin and showed grace and forgiveness to others. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. Don't ever forget that. Because that's what He's called us to as well. If God can use Matthew, He can use you and me. That's also how the Apostle Paul felt about his own life. He called himself the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. If God could save me, He could save you. And to Matthew's credit, he followed Jesus. You know, sometimes when a person feels like they're on the out and everybody looks out down on them and nobody wants them, and they hear this invitation to come and follow, you know, they just don't want to do it because they think, oh no, there's got, there's got to be something else here. Or, no, they really don't love me. But there was something in Jesus, in the way that He approached people, in His manner, that sinners were drawn to Him. Don't let your sin be an excuse for not serving. There are times people look at their past and what they've done and they think, God could never use me. No, there is a place for you. And there's a story that you have to tell of God's grace in your life. And Satan would love to keep you on the shelf, love to keep you away from serving or sharing your testimony or giving witness to the Gospel of Christ. But don't let him do that. God wants to use you. But on the other side, following Jesus also means leaving our sin behind. It means saying no to the old way of life. It means putting those things behind you. Confessing your sin. Turning from it and following Jesus Christ. Because we are a new creation in Him. One of the most well-known hymns in the English language is the hymn Amazing Grace. Written by John Newton. And I always marvel whenever I think about his own story. A man who once was a drunken sailor a slave trader, and a blasphemer of God. He was living a vile life apart from God. He would say of himself, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes. Here's this guy, willfully rebellious, disobedient, turned away from God. He's just going to live life the way he thinks it should be lived. And then on March 21st, 1748, a day that Newton would regard as holy for the rest of his life, 
God acted to save this 21-year-old man. They were caught at sea in a violent storm and he began to pray and he cried out and he didn't know how to pray. I mean, he, he just didn't know what to say. It was the first time he had ever cried out for mercy to God. And he called upon him, God, would you rescue me? He found a Bible on board the ship. He began to read and to read and to read. And he came to believe in Jesus Christ. The storm would pass, but the change in Newton's life was real. John Newton was changed by the grace of God, and he became a preacher of God's grace. And when he wrote those words in the hymn Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he meant it. I mean, that's the way he saw himself. I, I am a wretch who was saved by the grace of God. So are we. You know, no offense intended, but we were all wretches saved by the grace of God. Do you ever think about where you would be apart from His grace? I mean, sometimes I think about that and I wonder. And I thank God for His mercy. Thirdly, when we come to know Christ, His love casts out all fear. The Bible says that there is no fear in love, Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We fear God when we fear His punishment. But when we've come to know His love and His mercy and His forgiveness, we realize that that has passed because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. The Scriptures will say in Romans 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. Satan comes. He's the accuser of the brethren. He still wants to accuse us. He wants to drive a wedge in our relationship with God. But God says, we are forgiven. And He has taken our sins and He has cast them into the deepest part of the sea. Jesus loves us too much to leave us in doubt about His grace. There's a beautiful story that was told about, it's really a picture of God's mercy and grace in our life that comes out of the end of World War II. When World War II was drawing to a close in Europe, the German army had started to recruit children to man the lines in a futile effort to stop the Allied invasion into their homeland. It was March of 1945, and a man named Dr. Karl Schlesier, a German soldier, describes this time. He said, I was in a battalion of teenage grenadiers fresh out of training, and we were sent into the front lines east of the Rhine River after American forces had established a foothold on the east bank. Fresh American units were pushed across and our battalion was ordered to plug a hole in the front line. We dug in three companies abreast on a slight rise in front of a little town of Kirchellen and I was with the first company in the center of the position. My company numbered about 80 teenagers. In bitter fighting, American troops pushed through on both sides but, we got, but they got stuck in front of my company. 
About 17 or 18 of us were left, and we huddled in two-man foxholes. On the morning of March 28th, amid smoldering tanks and twisted bodies, there suddenly came an eerie silence. I looked over the hole I shared with a buddy, and I saw no life but a movement in the busted roof of a farmhouse about 200 yards away. In feeling sudden panic, I stood up in the foxhole and I fired four rapid shots at nothing in particular. But the eerie silence was broken by a single voice. A lone American soldier had walked calmly toward the entrenched Germans. And he was saying in a calm and low voice, Come out. Come out. I looked at him. And I'm sure he knew that there were two soldiers that had their machine guns trained on him, and yet he still came. To have shot him would have seemed like murder because it was not a threat. He just wanted us to give up. My foxhole happened to be directly in the path of the approaching American soldier. So I and my buddy were the first to see him. And I was startled to see that the soldier was an American Indian. He had the classic face of an Indian and it was not threatening at all. He spoke to the German soldiers. He motioned for us to put down our arms. And we did. We dropped our weapons, took off our helmets, we talked them back into the foxhole, and then this Indian soldier told them to put their hands over their heads. And he turned, and he invited them to follow. He turned and walked toward the American lines without looking back as the German soldiers followed. Schlesier was overwhelmed. He said he must have been the most reasonable man, the most perceptive, the most understanding, and by far the most brave. He had not been ordered to do this. He chose to do it on his own. We had not expected to live, and he must have seen how idiotic this all was, and he acted on his own to save us, risking his life in the process. And later in the prisoner of war camp, we talked about him. If he had not come to get us, we would have died in our foxholes. I owe him my life, and I have lived it. If Christ had not come for us, we would have died in our sins. And we owe him our life. Let's live it for him. The passage that we looked at here this morning is a beautiful picture of God's grace and forgiveness. Jesus came to call sinners, sinners like Matthew, even to be a disciple of his. So don't let your sin and your failures keep you from following Christ. Don't let them stand in the way of getting to know him and growing in your relationship with Christ because he loves you too much. He laid down his life for you. But instead, confess your sins to Christ and he will forgive you. Surrender your life to Christ and he will lead you and he will show you what it is that he wants you to do. You know, if you've come to our church this fall and this is really the first time you've been here, you know, we encourage people beyond Sunday morning to get involved in a small group or our ABFs where you can get to know other believers in Christ.
to encourage you in your relationship with God because we all need that. We all need that kind of fellowship and teaching and instruction. And when you come, you know, there are places, depending upon where you are in your relationship with Christ, if you're just checking things out, we have a class called Christianity Explorer that can help you just to investigate the claims of Christ. We have classes that can help you to understand what it means to be a disciple and how to learn to study the Scripture and grow in Christ. And we have places where we want to pray for you and pray with you and encourage you in your relationship with Him. Wherever you're at, In your spiritual journey, it's time to take the next step and to follow this one who loved you and gave his life for us. Let's pray. Father God, how can we ever thank you for your mercy that was so freely given in Jesus who came to rescue us just like that soldier came to rescue those young German teenagers. Father, you know what stands in the way in our life that keeps us from growing at times. You know the things that we may be holding on to that we need to let go of. You know our fears that may keep us from following you for fear of where you may lead us or what you may ask us to do. But Father, you are good and loving. And I pray that we would be bold in our faith, bold to share the good news of the gospel, courageous in our obedience, that we would live for you with no regrets. We ask it in your name. Amen.